Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Well, hello there. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 230. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here with you. And Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we've got a couple of terrific conversations for you this week on the podcast. A little bit later on, New York Times bestselling author C.J. Box will talk with us about his brand new book, Treasure State. Up first, well, he's a certified legend in the television world as one of the most accomplished directors in the history of the medium. He has directed over a thousand episodes of network television through the years and some of the biggest and most successful and most highly regarded sitcoms of all time. The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Bob Newhart Show, Taxi, Cheers, where he was a co-creator, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, Mike and Molly, the list goes on and on. All of it chronicled in a wonderful new memoir called Directed by James Burroughs. We had a wonderful time talking with the great director, James Burroughs, here on Downtown. I love this book so much. It was like uh, spending some quality time, well, with old friends I've never actually met. Uh, well, uh, I hope you uh, I hope you get to meet those people in person someday. Well, it's a wonderful story, and yours is such a fascinating one. Uh, uh, your father, Abe, a legend, and uh, I'm a high school theater director, so I have a, a fondness for his work and, and some great stories about him in there. I, I especially liked uh, his way of signaling Bobby Morris that it was time to back off a little bit <laughs> during uh, How to Succeed. Uh, yes, uh, my dad had a, uh, a Bobby Morris who was wonderful in How to Succeed, uh, you know, in the run, as actors do when their show is successful and they have to play a performance every week, they tend to embellish or, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, put in their improvements. And my dad used to go in the back of the theater and check out the show. And Bobby, who was really gifted, but put a lot of filigree upon filigree. <laughs> and my dad had a little pen light. And so when, if you're an actor looking out into the audience, you mainly see just darkness. You know, you're also blinded by these, the spotlights that are on you. But in my dad, Abe, if he thought Bobby was over the line, he'd blink his little pen light and Bobby could see it and Bobby would back down <laughs> and take out his improvements. So uh, my dad was, you know, it was not a hostile relationship with Bobby. It just was, and, you know, as I said, as an actor doing eight shows a week, you have to invent stuff to keep you interested. And uh, that's what Bobby did. Well, you obviously uh, took a lot from your father, a uh, love of music, which led you to several years performing with the Metropolitan Opera's Children's Chorus. But but it seems <laughs> like from the book, the greatest gift was uh, that sense of rhythm, the rhythm of comedy that allowed uh, both your dad and you to be able to close your eyes and and hear those beats that make comedy work. Yeah, my dad, uh, <clears throat> my dad, when he was doing a straight play uh, or a straight comedy without music, he would walk behind the scenery. And if he heard pauses, he knew nobody was dancing, so he was in trouble. So he would, he would listen to the rhythms. And when I do my shows, I do sit in front of the cast and, and, and behind the cameras and, 
but I, I there are moments when I don't watch the video screens and I just listen to the rhythms and try to make sure the rhythms are okay and try to protect a, a joke. If an actor screws up a line on a way to the joke, uh, I will jump in and I'll go pop, 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 like that. So the audience doesn't hear the joke told the wrong way because 90% of humor is surprise. So if they hear the joke the wrong way, when they tell the joke the right way, they're not going to laugh as hard. Uh, your dad also, when you were in college uh, at Oberlin, sent you the button-down mind of Bob Newhart and the 2,000-year-old man. That That's pretty good start to building a comedy career. Yes, I was... I was the hit of Barrow's dorm. <laughs> I, uh, 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 my dad sent me these records and all my, 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 uh, my college friends would come to my small room just to hear Newhart was, you know, he was, he was a killer back then. And the 2000 year old man is probably with Carl and Mel is probably the, one of the funniest records I ever had. And, and to be able to, uh, to work with Bob Newhart, uh, you know, uh, decades later was a thrill for me. And I, the first show I did with Bob, I was just so, such a fan that uh, telling him how uh, uh, the button down mine had made me more popular in college. <laughs> and, but, but Bob is a, is a wonderfully gracious man. Uh, you did stage work. Uh, you worked on Broadway. I, I love the June Allison story, but I, I want people to read the book uh, to <laughs> read about that. But you uh, um, you also made a key connection there uh, working uh, on Breakfast at Tiffany's, I, I would say, serving to largely comfort Mary Tyler Moore every night. I was uh, it was my uh, my first job on Broadway. I was the assistant to the assistant stage manager on an ill-fated musical called Breakfast at Tiffany's that my dad wrote. It was not his best work. Um, my dad was, uh, we went out of town with Mary Tyler Moore and Richard Chamberlain, Laura Petrie and Dr. Kildare. And I was in charge of them. I was, well, they were from California. They didn't know their way around a stage. So I was in charge of making sure they knew when to enter and were there for their cues and everything like that. I would run lines with them. And uh, we were out of town. The show was a big hit. And when we came back into town, David Merrick decided to get rid of my father and, and hire somebody else to do, to do, to write the show and somebody else to direct it. And I said to my dad, can I stay on the Titanic? <laughs> and, and he said, that was fine. So I would, you know, when, when we rehearsed a new show in New York and then we opened for previews, and in the initial preview, we were hooted off the stage. The, the the audience hated us. And Mary would come off after a scene and she'd, you know, collapse in my arms crying because they she was so intimidated by an audience talking back to her. So we made a connection then. And uh, I, I, um, I used that about 10 years later. Yeah, you were watching TV. The Mary Tyler Moore show came on, and uh, that in inspired you to write a letter, and that resulted in you directing uh, not only some episodes of the Mary Tyler Moore show, but to the Bob Newhart show. Yeah, I, I wrote a. I <clears throat> I was directing Joan Fontaine in Forty Carats in Wallingford, Connecticut, and I came home on a Saturday and I turned on the TV, and there was the Mary Tyler Moore show. I had never watched it before. 
And I looked at it and I say, well, I know Mary and look, they're doing 25 minute theater production in a week and I'm doing a two hour theater production in a week. So I figured that maybe I could do that. So I wrote her a letter and uh, two, two, two weeks later, Grant Tinker, her husband, who ran the company MTM, called me and said, we're very interested in theatrical directors. Can we bring you out to do one show? And it was the quickest yes I've ever said <laughs> in my life. We're talking with James Burroughs here on Downtown. Can you talk about the role the great Jay Sandrich played in your career? The, the great and late Jay Sandrich, unfortunately, passed away this year. Mm. Jay uh, was directing the Mary Tyler Moore show when I observed it. Yeah, you know, you can, when you come out to do um, work in situation comedy as a theater director, you have to learn the cameras. You have to learn how to cover the action because you are literally filming a play. So I spent four months watching cameras and I went to watch the Mary Tyler Moore show and Jay Sandridge, a legend, was directing the show and we became friends. And he took me under his wing and uh, I could ask him any questions I wanted. And he was instrumental in my career. He just, uh, I, I, you know, he was a, a wonderfully sweet man. Uh, you moved on to uh, help start Taxi, which is just one of the great shows of all time, a, a brilliant cast. But as you point out in the book, uh, maybe one of your most challenging jobs. Yeah, it was the first it was the first show that I was a resident director on. I was hired from the pilot and I did, I think of the first 75 episodes, I did 74. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a lot of, um, uh, my resume was not that great. I was brought in by uh, Jim Brooks and Ed Weinberg, Stan Daniels and Dave Davis, who created the show. They knew me from my work at Mary Tyler Moore. So, and, and so they brought me in and it was the first time we used four film cameras regularly on all, all the MTM shows. There were only three film cameras because economically it was better because you didn't have film right. rolling through uh, a, a fourth camera for, uh, for, for two hours. So uh, it, the four camera technique was a lot different than three cameras. It was a big, huge set, and I'd like to say the cast was interplanetary. It was a group of individuals who, you know, predominantly they came from the theater. Danny and Judd and Mary Lou and Jeff Conaway were theater theater rats. Right. But Tony Danza was a boxer. Andy Kaufman was a stand was a stand not really a stand up. He was a um, <laughs> he was a performance artist. So I had to mold these people into a into a group that uh, uh, a homogeneous group that would would function as as um, as a great cast on television. Uh, from there, you teamed up uh, with Glenn and Les Charles, the brothers, as you refer to them in the book, uh, for one of the great series of all time. Eleven years, and I, I can't think of a of an episode that wasn't terrific uh, of cheers. And you guys uh, were fans of faulty towers. You thought about setting the show uh, perhaps in a hotel, but eventually you landed on a bar shades of Duffy's tavern. Yeah. My, my dad's show. Uh, he was the head writer on Duffy's tavern. Uh, and uh, it, it was interesting when we started cheers. Uh, anytime you start a show like that, you get lawsuits. 
you know, you stole my idea, you did this, that's my character. So we got a number of lawsuits and I would always say to people suing who had written shows about bars, I said, get, get in line behind my dad because he can sue me. For, <laughs> he should sue me first. Uh, yeah, we, we, the, the boys, you know, the, the comedy, a lot of comedy writers don't come from Henderson, Nevada, but the brothers <laughs> were born in Henderson, Nevada. And, uh, we hooked up on taxi and to do, and then we had our the same agent. He said, you guys should do a show. So we made a deal with NBC and we did cheers and it was, it was a wonderful experience. It was, uh, we, we birthed a baby and we were all proprietary about the show. We were all fathers of the show. Uh, they were, they were gracious enough to give me co-created credit, even though they wrote the show. Um, and uh, it was it was us, the three of us breaking away because we were under the influence of all these wonderful writers. We were, had worked with Jim Brooks, Alan Burns, Dan Daniels, Patchett and Tarsus, all these people. So this was our first show and it turned out to be a wonderful success that, well, you know, it's still my favorite show of all time for that I've ever done. And the first instance of a, what you call the Jimmy Burroughs curse, uh, these unknown actors <laughs> who go on to become superstars. Yeah, it was a little bit on Taxi, too. Uh, you know, the only one who was kind of known was Judd. Judd, you know, was a relatively well-known actor. But, uh, no, Cheers was all unknowns. We, we, you know, our first guest star on Cheers was Tip O'Neill, who was then Speaker <laughs> of the House. So that can that gives you a little idea about uh, what we felt about you know uh, having having uh, having you know actors with stature on the show because I felt and the boys felt that if you introduce people to ca actors you've never seen before and they, they become successful on your show the audience feels proprietary about them because they feel like they have develop this actor into a television star. So they're, they're, they're more invested in the mm. show. So we, um, I've done, I've most of the shows, you know, like 95, 96% of shows I've ever done are with all, all unknown actors, because that's what I like. I like to form them into a, a homogeneous group that in rehearsal, love one another they 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 get on with one another and that transcends across the screen and so uh um uh, you know taxi friends frazier had a character from taxi he was the known character everybody else was unknown and will and grace and big bang and all those shows it's the same thing and uh you know i i love that because in my mind if you have a comedic star in your show that is known when you cut to him you know he's going to say something funny so an element of the surprise is lost so that's why i like these unknown people i thought it was really interesting you talk about the transition that kelsey Grammer made from going from one of the strange characters the outliers in cheers to being the center on frazier and and what an adjustment that required and and how much it spoke volumes about his acting ability yeah, he was, he's an amazing actor, Kelsey. I mean, for uh, 
nine years on Cheers, he 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 played a buffoon. Uh, you know this comical, uh, egocentric doctor who 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 spouted, uh, you know Schopenhauer references and Kierkegaard references. And uh, what the boys did, Angel, Casey, and Lee, who created that show, and asked if they could spin off Kelsey. What they did was they made Kelsey Sam Malone on Frasier, hired David Hyde Pierce to be Frasier on Frasier. And it's a tribute to their skill, but it's also a tribute to the ability that Kelsey Grammer has to become a center of a show after playing a buffoon on a, a show for nine years. He was a gifted enough actor to be the windows that the audience sees us show through. And that's a tribute to his extraordinary talent. You said that uh, Will and Grace might be the funniest show you've done, that when you, if you look at laughs per minute, never better than that. No, it was, it was crazy, that show. Uh, you know, the, the Max, Max Muchnick and David Cohen created it. And the jokes were rat-a-tat-tat. Uh, I mean, and all four of them could do a joke. All four of them in the the jokes were particular to their character. Like like uh, Eric couldn't do a Grace joke because it wouldn't look good on his character. So we did. There was Eric jokes and Deb jokes and and uh, and Sean jokes and Megan killer jokes. So. Uh, they were just extremely talented, and and uh, so there were just jokes like you couldn't do on any other show. I love this a little behind the scenes inside baseball thing, but I, I love reading about how you took uh, your work in theater and, and the idea of using different levels on a set, and and what a difference that made in so many of your shows. Yeah, it's. Uh, in the theater, it helps to have levels, you know, just to, to get the audience eyes to look up and, and, and maybe down and stuff like that. In television, uh, it's not done so often. But for me, being a theater rat, I like levels. You know, if you're watching a television screen, you're not going to look up when the character walks up the stairs. You're still looking at, this, at the boob tube. You know, your eyes, but maybe your eyes move a little bit. You know, and it just, especially in Will and Grace, the kitchen was two steps up from the living room. So you had, you know, when Will was cooking, he was looking down at, uh, at Jack or or down at Grace. And so it just adds uh, a little, an element of um, making it a little different than just a completely flat stage. Great stories, too, about Billy Gardell and how willing he was uh, to work with you. And, and isn't that what you look for as a director? Those people that are willing to take chances and want to be a big part of that collaborative effort? I love actors that kiss the ring. <laughs> <laughs> and Billy, you know, Billy is a dear friend and uh, uh, also one of the one of the great straight men because he was he was the windows that you watched that show mm. through. It wasn't so much Melissa. It was because Mike loved Melissa, and you—that was your entree to the show. Was was Billy, and I—I—I uh, uh, I, I found he was one of the few guys. Well, there are there are a couple others, but he could. Billy was great delivering a joke sitting down. So I have what's known as Gardell blocking. 
<laughs> which is I used to bring Billy in, sit him on a couch, and everybody would pivot around him. And Billy would do jokes from that. And it I use it, it's in my vernacular now. And actors have said to me, what's Gardell blocking? And I'll tell them. You bring him in, you sit him down, and he does all the jokes from there, and uh, he, he scores. Um, so uh, uh, it was, you know, Billy, I gave Billy his first job. He had one line on a pilot I did called Queens. And I said, <laughs> And I gave a note that he was broadcasting his line, <laughs> his one line. So uh, that was my first direction to him. But he's a dear friend and a wonderful human being. How did you become the pilot whisperer? What's the count up to now? Well over 50 pilots, right? Uh, I've done over 100. Oh, I my think. gosh. Wow. And uh, I think 75 of them have got on the air. So uh, some of them with a modicum of success and some of them were, you know, huge hits. What keeps your creative juices flowing after uh, nearly 50 years of directing? Laughter. Uh, you know, I believe, I believe uh, uh, the Norman Cousins syndrome, you know, you know Norman Cousins yeah. was a man who uh, was given a death sentence with a, with a certain disease. I don't remember the name of it, but he said to the people in the hospital, can you bring me, all the Marx Brothers movies you can have, all the Fields movies you can have, I can have, and we run them on my television. And they ran them, and he laughed, and he gained many years and added many years to his life through laughter. And if you, and if you, you know, I've worked with Norman Lear the last couple of years, and he will also maintain that laughter is important to, to, uh, keeping you young. And so th that's why I do it. I, 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 you know, the will and graces, there were, there were laughs, but uh, I was still nervous before every show, you know, flop sweat. Yeah. You, know, you know, and then it's just such a high when an audience goes crazy for a show that it uh, hopefully has added years to my life. You know, Perry Gilpin is a great friend of our show. She comes on a lot. Our our listeners voted her the favorite guest of our show. Uh, is there a good, have you got a good Perry story that we can uh, maybe give her a hard time about next time she's on? Well, you know how, does she, has she told you how she got the part on Frasier? Well, she didn't want to talk about Lisa Kudrow at all. She wanted to move on from that quickly. Well, well, I'm just saying uh, it benefited two actresses. Right. Yeah, so, so a story about Perry. Uh, have you seen her husband's paintings? I have not. Oh, my God. She is married to a guy named Christian Vincent, who is a wonderful artist. We have a couple of his works hanging in our house. And, uh, uh, you know, she has twins. Know that. Who are We're off to college now. Off to college. But they, you know, when I started working her, working with her, not working her, when I started working with her, <laughs> There were no kids. So now there are, you know, kids. And uh, she was also on a Cheers. Did she tell you that? Right, right. And then uh, was it the, the Lupe Valdez story that, that proved to be the difference maker, right? Right, right. Uh, Roz Doyle, the character she eventually played, had to be strong and affirmative with Kelsey. And that were that was not Lisa's colors. And uh, it, it, it turned out great for both of them. And 
Yeah, but I'm, I'm friendly with them both, and uh, uh, Lisa has forgiven me, and Perry <laughs> keeps thanking me. Uh, but the they knew Perry because uh, Peter and David and David knew Perry because she had done a Cheers. So, And there was a real Roz Doyle. Yes, unfortunately, she passed away when the boys, uh, Angel Casey and Lee, were doing Wings, which was their first show. Uh, and, you know, it's, there's, it is a story, and it's become vernacular. There's you know, vernacular things like the people when they're doing sitcoms now talk about doing a Sam and Diane relationship, which is in the vernacular. And there's also the story of uh, uh, that shows my wing. Which means, which meant that Angel Casey and Lee, the first show they did on their own was Wings, and then they did, which was moderately successful, mm -hmm. and then they did Frasier. So people will come in and talk to studios and everything, like say, who have done you know a middle show that's not great, and they'll say that's my Wings, <laughs> okay. So the next show will be my Frasier. So that's uh, Roz was the producer of Wings. Well, the book is absolutely wonderful, directed by James Burroughs. Uh, uh, Jim, uh, thank you so much for 50 years of, of joy and laughter that you've brought to so many of us. It's a real treat for us to get to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you for taking me downtown. Jimmy Burroughs talking with us about his uh, remarkable new memoir directed by James Burroughs. We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, best-selling author C.J. Box up next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. He was born in the Bitterroot Valley in the early morning rain. Wild geese over the water, heading north and home again. Bringing a warm south, bringing the first taste of the spring. His mother took him to her breast, softly she did sing. Oh, Montana, give this child a home. Our next guest on Downtown is the author of some 30 books, the Joe Pickett series, the Cassie Duell series, and a story collection. His books have been translated into 27 languages. He's won the Edgar, Anthony, Gumshoe, and Barry Awards. And among other things, as an executive producer of ABC Television's Big Sky, based on his Cody Hoyt, Cassie Duell novels. And he's got a brand new one out that is terrific called Treasure State. Our conversation with author C.J. Box here on Downtown. C.J., thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, the book is absolutely terrific. You know, they always say, uh, write what you know, and uh, you certainly do that, and, and you capture um, Western America so very well in all of your books. Thank you. I, I really do appreciate that. Yeah, in, in, uh, in Treasure State, it takes place in Montana. Um, if anybody's seen those license plates, Montana license plates, they say the Treasure State. Um, and in this case, I, I concentrated it on an area, uh, old, two old mining towns, um, uh, Butte and Anaconda, Montana, and a little bit in Bozeman. And they're very un-Montana-like in that they almost look like, you know, western Pennsylvania steel towns dropped into the Rocky Mountains. But they're fascinating, real 
real places, and um, that's where most of the action takes place. Well, and it seems like whether it's Anaconda, Montana, or, or any other town, uh, the land itself becomes a character in your books. That's right. Um, I think much like Maine, um, which is another state I love and love to visit, uh, the, you know, the outdoors, the weather, the terrain, um, all play a very important role in everybody's lives every day, and they just thus become part of the story. I, I don't know if it's a real place, but uh, for some reason— the Flint Creek Motor Court. I could just picture that so well. <laughs> <laughs> I based that on a on a little place I found in in Anaconda. It's not that's not the actual name of it. Well, Cassie has been such a great character throughout so many books. How did you find her voice? You know, um, she actually first appeared in a book called The Highway um, many years ago. Uh, it, the book was it was more about the protagonist, Cody Hoyt, and Cassie was a secondary character. And halfway through the book, Cody Hoyt gets shot and killed. And Cassie finds herself in the role of trying to um, solve this case, find this serial killer truck driver. And um, I really enjoyed writing Cassie's character more than I ever thought, because it's awfully dicey for a male author, I think, to um, write a female character who's authentic and not just so many male writers make the female characters this like kick-ass females who beat people up and <laughs> overpower them. And I've never met any women like that in my life, in my real life. And that, so Cassie is much more empathetic. I think she's in her forties. She's a little bit overweight. Um, she doesn't dazzle people. In fact, she's often overlooked and underestimated, but she works really hard and um, she's very dedicated to her clients and to, solving cases and being a single mom. And I think it's, it's just a character that I, I know I would like. Well, this story, uh, Treasure State, is so fascinating. Uh, it involves the search for uh, Sir Scott's treasure, and, and it, boy, it brings in so much history as well. And you mentioned uh, those mining towns and, and their history, their legacy play a big part in what goes on. They do. The, uh, the, the two, there's two cases in the books. One um, involving a woman who hires Cassie to try to find a man who bilked her out of $7 million and, she thinks, returned to Montana. Um, the other case is based on a real-life story about um, a guy who buried two, two or $3 million of gold and jewels and then wrote a poem with clues on how to find it. Um, in real life, the guy's name was Forrest Finn. And for eight years, hundreds, some maybe thousands of people were looking for that treasure based on the poem. Five people died trying to find it. Uh, but it was a very big story in the West, some people doubting that there was even any treasure. But two years ago, it was discovered in Wyoming. And um, the man who discovered it used the clues and um, actually did find it. Well, and as often the case in a good mystery, uh, let's just say, Everything is not as it appears. That's right. And in, in fact, the uh, the treasure hunt part of the the book, um, it, it, Cassie's not out there to try to find the treasure. She's actually hired by the guy who wrote the poem to see if she, if she can find him, because he thinks that if the treasure hunters out there know his identity, they'll be able to zero in on the treasure easier. So um, she's out there interviewing authors all over the state of Wyoming, trying to uh, narrow it down to find the guy who wrote this poem. 
We're talking with C.J. Box about his terrific new book, Treasure State. There's a lot going on, uh, multiple mysteries, uh, different timelines happening here. When you're putting the book together, do you uh, do you have a timeline of sorts? Do you outline what you're doing and where you're going? I do. Um, I I usually start from just kind of a bullet point outline of the entire plot from um, chapter one through the end, and then then start writing on top of that. But often when I do it, rather than be completely linear, I kind of I, I like to do a little bit of time hopping. Um, I think it makes it, it adds tension to the book when you know things that have happened uh, before the book starts, and also kind of put gives the reader more information than anybody in the book has, including Cassie on what's going on. Now, you know uh, characters like Cassie so well. Do those characters ever lead you to unexpected places? They do. Um, There's, even though I do, you know, plot everything out, there's something, something could happen in the news, or I could be in Anaconda, Montana and see something or experience something that I never thought about in terms of the book and suddenly make a hard right turn, hard left turn, and include that in the book. Um, and that, that's always kind of magical when that happens because it's, it's so so unexpected. Now, obviously, a part of this is a, a pride in, in where you're from, but you do such a great job of making these characters very real and not falling into, uh, falling into stereotypes of Western characters. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, that's there are some writers that write about the West where everybody I think is is a caricature. All everybody's a slow talking cowboy, you know. And uh, um, I try not to do that, but by making the characters kind of fallible and um, authentic, I think it actually increases the tension in the book because you know they could screw up um, or be outsmarted or you know overpowered because they aren't superhuman. So that, and I think I've done that with the Joe Pickett series, and now with Cassie Duell. And I think I like to write those kind of situations, and I think readers like it as well. What do you think it is about the West CJ that that draws uh, even us uh, Flatlanders from the East in? Well, I think I'm, and part of it is I think just a myth. Um, you know, the place where people could could leave um, civilization and realize their dreams and have plenty of room and do it. You know, start their lives again and in a new place. And some of that still exists. Uh, you know, the landscape sure, certainly has not changed. And um, we saw that in real life during the pandemic. Um, so many people have moved to the Mountain West uh, from both coasts to get away from people and population centers and so on. Um, the little valley that I live in, it's a little mountain valley. Last summer, um, there were 29 real estate agents trying to sell the one house that was still available. <laughs> And people were buying homes over the phone and, uh, you know, not even seeing them and just moving out. So that kind of thing still exists. Well, and, and you talk about it in the book. So there's a lot going on when it comes to the, the use of the land and, and conservation. And, and you seem to successfully walk that fine line of, uh, of sharing information about it without landing on one side or the other. I try to do that. I, I trust the reader, you know, um, a lot of these issues are very controversial that I write about when, in terms of like energy development and environmentalism and wind energy, all sorts of things like that, um, that are discussed all over the country now. And they tend to start in the Mountain West where a lot of the energy resources are. 
So I try to present both sides. Um, I feel, feel that there's you know, well-meaning people on both sides of these controversies, and I'd r- rather have characters say their piece on both sides and trust the reader to come down where they may rather than to hit somebody over the head with it and say, this is the way it is. You know, these people are bad. These people are good. There's a lot of nuance in all of this, and um, I want to explore that, too. We mentioned Big Sky. We love the series, and we've had uh, Dee Dee Pfeiffer from Big Sky has been on with us a couple of times, and, and John Carroll okay. Lynch as well. And, man, Rick Legarski, what a great character he was. Yes, he was. I, I thought they did a great job casting him. Perfect. Um, uh, I thought he was great in the show. How hard is that to, for a writer to give that over to someone else to choose the embodiment of these characters that have existed primarily in your mind? Well, it is. It's otherworldly. Um, certainly it's a different, you know, writing is very isolating and, um, a TV, TV production is, uh, you know, hundreds of people with their own opinions on how things should be. So you just kind of have to give it up. Um, and it's, if you if the right people are doing the show, it's much easier to give up, and because you don't know which direction they're going to go sometimes, and you always think they should abide by what's on the pages, but sometimes it's not so practical. The best thing about the TV shows is um, they expose a lot of people to the books. Um, you know, viewers want to find out where the source material mm. is, and if they like certain things in the series, they want to know where it came from. So the sales of, of the books have kind of skyrocketed since the shows have come out, and that's that's a, a great bonus and a great thing, and there's a lot of new readers. What's the state of the publishing industry right now? I mean, there are, there are in some ways more opportunities uh, for people to get books out there, but I, I would think that also means it's easier to get lost in the shuffle. I think you're exactly right. I, every year more books are published. Um, the numbers are incredible how many are out there. And, uh, you know, and you're right. Unfortunately, there's so m- there's so much content that it's hard for anything to break through. I think it's tough for new writers. I would not want to be a first time author right now, because um, unless you just somehow have a, you know, a shot in the dark, um, you know, mega hit right out of the gate. Uh, publishers don't tend to stick with people who aren't selling real well. And there's so many books that they can't all sell well. Well, what's the future hold uh, for readers? Will we hear more from Cassie Duell down the road? Oh, definitely. I, do, I never think beyond the book I just finished, really, but I know there will be another Cassie Duell book down the line. Um, there will be a Joe Pickett book next March um, that I finished just before uh, Treasure State came out called Stormfront. And, um, excuse me, Storm Watch. I can't mispronounce my own title <laughs> storm watch and i'm excited about that and then uh then i'll start thinking of the new cassie dual book fantastic well the new one treasure state is absolutely fabulous uh, check it out uh you're gonna love it and then uh, go back and, and get caught up and read all of them along the way cj box thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon it was my pleasure thank you cj box talking about the new book treasure state here on downtown our thanks to cj And thanks to uh, James Burroughs as well for joining us to discuss his book, directed by James Burroughs. We remind you, Downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown, the podcast.